you brought your scripture with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and uh, open to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And if you're new with us, we are in the middle of a series of messages focused on the end of history and the great climax of the great plan of God. And uh, that song that we just sang, the Revelation song, actually is a reminder of that. Uh, It's one of the reasons that that we gather to worship is to remind ourselves that we are not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of the universe, that God is, and more importantly, his son. And to be reminded that at the center of history is the most amazing work of love and power and justice that the world will ever see, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And to be reminded that this world in which we live is headed on a collision course with its maker and with the risen son of God. For some, that will be an an amazing moment of of inexpressible joy, and and for others, it will be a time of mourning. So this morning, we come to the ninth in the series, and next week, we will wrap up, and we're going to be looking at um, the topic of, of love. Let me pray once again and ask the Lord to help us. Father, you are more than we'll ever know that our wildest imaginations looking through telescopes cannot begin to grasp the enormity of your power or your holiness or your wisdom or your strength or your mercy or your love. How precious, O Lord, is your steadfast love in that we find joy, belonging, peace, and hope Lord, we ask that you in your mercy and grace would speak a fresh word to your people. We want to meet with you in your word, not simply just to fill our minds with words and verbs and nouns and pronouns and facts, but more importantly, to know that there is a God who exists, who loves us, who gave his life for us, and is coming again to rescue us. Enable us in this time, O Lord, to have the courage to live out our lives in obedience, loving and glad obedience to our Lord and Savior, risen King, and coming King, Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think some of you know that one of the heroes of the faith for me is, uh, is a German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in the um, early 20th century, who um, died by hanging in Nazi Germany, um, died for his convictions. I have grown to love not only his life, but his, his works, and his, his writings are so Christ-centered, they almost always just fill me with a sense of worship. Uh, but there's something about heroes that can be a negative, and that is you don't see the warts, and so they almost become godlike. And I remember um, picking up a, a collection of his prison poems and reading um, the poems that he wrote there in a, a German prison awaiting execution. And one of the poems that he wrote was entitled, Who Am I? And it explores the difference between how people saw him versus what he knew in his own heart. That he recognized that people in prison saw him as a very strong person. And that's how many would perceive him on the outside, and that's how you see him from a distance. But but also in that 
poem of Who Am I, he explored how he really felt inside, and that is while people saw him strong, he felt weak, and he felt scared. And that's a part of him that endeared me to him as well, because what it did is it taught me that he, he was human, who lived by grace just as the rest of us have to live by grace. And that's an important thing to recognize, is that anyone except Jesus is flawed and fallen. Now, those of you who know me well enough know that I am flawed. Um, there is no pedestal here. But I also recognize that, not to put myself even remotely in the same category as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but there still are those who think of, of a pastor as someone who has it all together, who has learned all the lessons of life and mastered the Bible, and that simply is not true. So let me just, in introducing our topic this morning, let me just tell you a bit about me for those of you who don't know. Um, again, I don't want to make this about me, but nevertheless, it, one, shatters any kind of elevated position one would put a pastor in, at the same time leads us to the topic. That one of the things that I pray for in my life daily is that the Lord would enable me to love people better. That I, I pray for the grace of God to work in me so that he will grow my love for God's people. Of course, my love for God, but also God's people. Especially in areas that I'm not gifted in or my personality uh, is not wired in that direction. Because we're all shaped differently, you know, based upon our personality, our gifting, and our upbringing. To love in certain ways that are more natural. But what I found is that love is has to have the ability to adapt itself to the moment of need, which may put you in places where you are uncomfortable or outside of your gifting or your personality type, in which case, love demands that you act, even when it's uncomfortable. And those are the things that I've been asking the Lord, okay, well, I want you to fill out my love so that my love can adapt itself to the need at the moment so that I can genuinely care for people in ways that are uncomfortable for me. And, uh, well, the Lord has answered that prayer. Um, multiple times. But he answers it by providing opportunities for me to grow. And as a bit of a side note, this seems to be the way in which God grows his people in terms of faith and love, that he just doesn't magically wave his wand over, over us and all of a sudden we grow a heart like, you know, the Grinch um, without the method of exercise. That it would seem that he uses the same thing in our spiritual life that he does in our physical life. That is, if we pray for love, then he's going to give us tests and give us opportunities to exercise love and, and learn. And sometimes it's pretty and sometimes it's not so pretty. Um, I have had a share of successes and, and also failures. And even those failures, of course, are not intended to be self-deprecating or, or self-loathing, but, um, but a means of understanding grace better and humbling ourselves. Well, one time in particular um, that I will not remember, that was a bit messy. There was some success and also some failure. This is uh, sometime this last year. Uh, I, it was a Friday night and uh, evening, and I was the last one here at church. I was trying to get things done for Sunday morning in the message. And so there's, you know, there, like it or not, there's a deadline. Every week, I stand up here, which means I can't get up here half done. Not only because of, I would for the fact that I'd be unfaithful to the Lord, but there's just a sense of responsibility of accurately dividing the word of truth that I'm going to be accountable for. So it's an important thing. So Friday comes, I'm the last one here at the, at the office, and um, I look up from my desk, and out uh, of the window I see a, a lady, in, an old lady in a, in a wheelchair, 
She had no teeth, I could tell, because her mouth was collapsed. And um, she was being pushed by a younger woman who had an obvious limp. So they just went by my office, and, and I was studying, putting things together, trying to wrap up. And, um, and I didn't think anything of it until I heard a knock at the door. And I knew at that moment, instantaneously, that it was, it was them. They were knocking on the door. And as the pastors and secretaries will tell you, we occasionally get people who stop by to be helped. Um, some are in legitimate need, a uh, need for um, uh, their power to be paid, or, or they just need food, or, or they've run out of gas. And, and others, of course, come to try and scam the church out of money. And almost invariably, any time we answer to the door, the door to s- someone who is in need, it becomes a vortex that sucks time. It's just the way it is. Um, either you're running off to the store, getting gas for them, and so forth, because we don't just hand out money. We, we want to use the money to get them what they need without giving it to them. That, obviously, is not, not very wise. So there I was at the moment, Friday night, deadline's coming, and I hear the knock at the door, and I know who it is. Now, I'd love to tell you that I burst out of my seat, and I ran to the door overjoyed to help. But that wasn't my first instinct. My first instinct, this is sad to say, my first instinct was, I wonder if I don't answer, will they go away? It just was a thought, but... Like, I know in my heart the truth of God, and I know that here is the need of the moment, despite deadlines. So I did get up, and I walked, even though I didn't want to, because I knew the Lord wanted me to. So I walk over to the office door, and I, and I push it open, and I actually hit her wheelchair. <laughs> At least she didn't fall over so I, I open the door, and, and in comes this burst of air. And it was, quite honestly, without exaggeration, the worst body odor I've ever smelled. And so I opened the door, and there they were, and I said, how can I help you? And so I, uh, they responded and said, well, we'd like money. And I, I said, well, I, I can't give you money, but what do you need? And they said, well, we need food. We haven't had a hot meal in a long time. I thought, okay, I can, I can do that. You know, okay, just stop here for a second. The vortex is just starting. Okay, I can do that, which means I'm going to have to go either take them shopping, which with the wheelchair is going to take an enormous amount of time, or I can go out and pick it up and bring it to them. So I decide, okay, quick calculation. I will go pick something up and bring it to you. So I said, next question, where do you live? And they respond, well, we're staying at the Motel 6. And I thought about that for a second. I said, so how did you get here? I mean, think about this. You guys know where Motel 6 is over off of Holiday Lane? That's like two and a half miles away, and she's in a wheelchair. So I have, how did you get here? And they said, well, we walked. So this lady, young lady with a limp, and I think she had a mental handicap of some sort, uh, was pushing this lady with a broken hip, and they'd walked two and a half miles from Motel 6 to Parkway. Now, you can't just go buy a pizza, hand it to them, and say, here, walk this pizza two and a half miles back. So I realized at this point that I need to give them a ride. Now, I'd like to say that I wanted to offer them a ride, but the very idea of putting them both in a small, confined space with that overwhelming smell just was hard for me. I did it, and we uh, hefted them into the, the Bronco and opened the back window and put the wheelchair in the back, and, and I got in, and there, there was that smell. 
And I'll tell you, I've never smelled a smell that made me want to throw up before, but that's how I felt. But at that very moment, I will tell you something that the Lord, the Spirit of God, impressed upon me. Just to be clear, when the Spirit of God impresses upon me something, it's almost always part of the gospel or the word that he brings to my mind. It questions me with it or confronts me with it. And in that moment, I'm in the car, I'm overwhelmed, and I've, I have a sense of, of reluctancy, obviously. And, um, and the Lord very clearly impressed upon me and said to me, these two are mine. Now, that's not a statement of election or choosing. That the fact of the matter is, by way of either redemption or creation, they belong to him. And I remember at that moment realizing that they are his and therefore objects of his love. And that was a humbling moment. We'll come back to it in a second. So we drove off, dropped them off at, at Motel 6. And to make a long story short, went off, got them a pizza because that's what they wanted, dropped it off at the Motel 6. And then I drove away. All my windows opened. <laughs> but I'll tell you something that I learned in that moment because there was failure. And on the other hand, I, I didn't give in to my fleshly side that said, I don't, I'm not going to do this. Um, that the Lord taught me some important lessons about love. And one of the things that he impressed upon me after they were dropped off, and this is a humbling experience, was when he asked me, again, an impression, Dan, who were you when I went to the cross for you? And how foul and how much of a stench did your moral corruption repulse me. And I just remember at that moment, whatever physical repulsion I had for people very different than I was with relatives in jail and so forth, that I realized that it was fractional, doesn't even mount on the chart in terms of how foul I was. And yet the Lord still loved me enough to come and die for me. That was an overwhelming sense of God's mercy in my life, and it really exposed both my pride and my hypocrisy. But part of the big lesson that I learned is when we genuinely know in our hearts the depth of mercy that God had personally for us, well, then it frees us to, to really love people without a sense of condemnation or judgment. And that was one lesson that I learned. The other lesson that I learned from that that the Lord impressed upon me in the effort to teach me what I've been praying for, that is to love in ways that, is un that are uncomfortable for me, was, uh, was back in the truck when he said, these are mine. I knew instinctively at that moment by him saying, these are mine. That meant that I was to be extremely careful and that I would be held accountable by the Lord, who's coming again, not only for how I treated them, but how I thought about them. That is a, a, a sobering reality to realize these are mine. Therefore, you're going to answer for, to me as to how you treat them and even how you think about them. And that really is, is where I'm going with this message and with this text, and I think you'll see how it fits, is... How do you love 
in ways that are uncomfortable, in ways that require certain amounts of sacrifice, in ways that may make you feel a sense of repulsion or just make you cause you to suffer. Because really, to, to love, which is what Christ calls us to and is to be the identifying mark of the disciple, really is to suffer. There's no way, as I think about it and I study it in Scripture, there's no way to get around the fact that to love is to suffer. That to love means you have to make yourself vulnerable. To love means you're going to take a risk and do something that you may not want to do. And sometimes that risk may include, include being rejected. It may include, you know, taking somebody in a car that, that you don't want to, somebody different than you, somebody that on any given day you wouldn't invite over for Christmas. Like, that is to love means you risk suffering. In fact, it's not just a risk, you will. And it's just part of what it means to love. So how do you love? Where do we find the strength and the motive to love when it's hard? And that brings me to, to this text, and it, you'll see it's a reflection of my, my own experience. Because here we come to, many of you are familiar with these at least first few chapters of the Revelation. There are seven letters that are given to seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, seven letters that address different issues in different churches. And if you have a red-letter edition, you'll notice it's all in red because these are the words of Christ. And addresses different maladies and issues that the church has faced, and I believe in one respect are representative of the struggles that the church would experience throughout the ages. So I don't think there's a church across the globe that can in some way, shape, or form connect themselves to these churches. The first and the biggest and most well-known and established of the churches is this first church, that is the church of Ephesus, that had the, the privilege of having two apostles teach it, Apostle John and Apostle Paul, and um, it was a place where Paul actually lectured for years. And this is what the Lord writes to them. He writes, here, for those of you who may not have the Bible with you, it's on the text in front of me, behind, behind me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, some heretical group, most speculate, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, in line with this particular series, we're focused on the future, which means I'm going to focus on the last part of this letter. But I think it's helpful if it's at least summarized in terms of context. Jesus introduces himself. Here's the one who is holding the seven stars and the one who walks among the lampstands. Those are interpreted for us back in chapter 1. 
the stars being the spirits or the representatives of the churches, and then the lampstands represent churches themselves. So pictures Jesus as in among present as Lord and also as inspector of his people, his churches. So he goes through and he looks at his churches and he inspects them, and, and he inspected this ancient church of Ephesus, and he gives them commendations for certain things. They worked hard, according to verse 2, they had a great work ethic. Two, they had a no-tolerance policy in terms of evil, very different from today's church. That is, they, it says right here, you cannot bear those who are evil. They had a sense of moral integrity. Three, they had a theological uh, discernment about them because they could test and know who were the true versus false apostles. And they had a, they had a tremendous uh, ability or perseverance to bear up for the name of Christ's sake. And then finally, the fifth thing is that they hated um, false teaching. So we have here a church that works hard, maintains moral integrity, is very discerning theologically, is persevering under the weight of persecution and hostility. They lived in a very, very pagan environment. And then they loved good doctrine and they hated false doctrine. So in one sense, this was a very strong church. Marks that still should be true of any church. But there's one thing missing. And it's not a little thing. Because here you have in verse 4, the thing that he has that, it, that is missing, the big hole in the heart of this church. He says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now that statement, you have abandoned the love you had at first, if you were in that congregation back then, must have been or should have been like a kick in the stomach. Because to have all of this other stuff, such a work ethic and such a commitment to moral integrity and such a commitment to perseverance and good, healthy doctrine, but not have love, according to the words of Paul, means you're nothing. Perhaps it goes without saying, for most of you who have been here at Parkway for a while, but for those of you who might be new, that's like the fundamental virtue of the Christian life. I mean, it's so important that it's, it's the sum, like the entire law and prophets can be summed up in a single word, and that is to love, that the single greatest commandment that Jesus taught us, and of course Paul affirmed, is that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, which is one command in two parts that it's the chief fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives, that is the identifying mark that we are indeed disciples of Jesus, and it's the, it's the virtue among faith, hope, and love that goes into eternity. Faith will receive sight and become obsolete. Hope will be fulfilled and become obsolete, but the one thing that remains in those three is love. It's probably what defines most accurately what eternity will be like in our relationship with God and each other, love. So to have abandoned it is like having a heart attack. But that's exactly what Jesus says of them. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had a problem loving. Somehow they lost it. And that, by the way, is the implication. 
the love you had at first, which is a better translation in my opinion than first love. That is, there was a former time in which this church was alive and loved each other and loved the community around them. In fact, Paul addresses this in his letter to the Ephesians almost a a generation earlier, the, the, the book that bears the name Ephesians, where he says in Ephesians 1 verse 15, that I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, that they had such a glowing reputation of loving people that he could commend them and give thanks to God for them because they loved all the saints. But somehow, within a generation, from the time Paul wrote to the time that John wrote the words of Jesus here, their love had dried up. And yet, they were still doing the right things. They were still doing works. They were still toiling. They were still laboring, which tells us they were going through the motions without the motive. They're still doing the right actions, but they were missing something internally. That, by the way, tells you that love is not merely action. They were doing labors, but something was missing, something in here that is love. Now, we can read between the lines to get a a sense of why love dried up. They were in constant conflict. They were trying to labor in the community. They were trying to maintain moral integrity in in a pagan, immoral environment. They were trying to assess and constantly... Listen and discern, is this an apostle or not an apostle? They were, they were struggling with Nicolaitan her- heresy, and so they were constantly in conflict, constantly trying to figure out what's right and wrong, and many believe that that created a, a spirit of criticism and suspicion that displaced love. And it's really easy for that to happen in conflict. That can happen in marriage, it can happen in a church, and it can happen in a community, in terms of the heart of the church. When you're constantly in conflict and trying to maintain what is right, in that conflict, it's really easy to lose love, to stop being patient and doing acts of kindness and not keeping a record of wrongs because the conflict almost demands a fight, and so you lose the heart. Well, that's, that's where they were. I connect with this, this letter because I want to know how better to love. But How? If it's that big of a deal, they had lost their love and it needed to be revived. They needed one of those heart defibrillators, you know, to bring it back to life, to get the blip going again and recover what is so essential to the Christian life. That everything we do, whether it's teaching, maintaining good doctrine or moral integrity, it's all done out of love. So how? How do you renew something once it's almost died or grown cold? It's, it's an important question, and a, and a hard question. I mean, on a human level, how do you recover love for your wife when it's been lost because there's been so much conflict? How to rejuvenate a, re, a renewed sense of desire, affection, and genuinely, gen, genuine love for, for your spouse after so much conflict? So it's a deep question, a hard question. You and I both know you can't just reach into your soul and Flip on the light. Oh, now I feel the love. We don't work like that. So how do, how does this church, how do we, how do I, how do we renew a sense of genuine love that is so essential? Well, one could 
say, well, look at the text. It says, repent and do the works you first, you did at first. Now, in one sense, I want to say amen to that. If, if we're unloving and we d- discern areas of unlove, then, then we do need to own up to it before the Lord in a sense of brokenness. Like, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't actually want to go to the door. I want to want to go to the door. So forgive me for my lack of love in this area of my life. Yes, own up to it, but that doesn't necessarily revive a, an affection. Or simply doing the works you did at first. You can easily do the works you did at first without a heart. So how do you restore love? How do we intensify our love? If that is the, which I believe it is the, defining mark of the Christian. Well, one could also offer this. Maybe it comes in remembering. Because that too is in the text, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Now, in the Bible, the whole idea of memory and remembering back is tremendously powerful. And to be sure, one can ignite motive by looking backward. I mean, put it again in the context of a marriage. You know, let's say things are dry. Sometimes it's really good to look back at the times when things were great. And you couldn't wait to be with each other. And, and you came home at the end of the day with a sense of anticipation to open the door and see the face of your bride. And to remember back to those times because that can ignite a sense of we need to go there again. So one can renew by looking backward. But this is what I want to submit to you and in line with this particular series and the flow of the book. One can also recover, renew, and intensify love which is so essential by looking forward. The last verse of the letter. This is what it says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's shorthand for those who really have the Spirit of God in the congregation, and not everybody does, will hear this and understand and respond. That him who has an ear, hear what the Spirit of the churches says to the churches, and here it is. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Here you have the statement, to the one who conquers. Now, in this context, what is it that they're to conquer? Their lovelessness. The fact that they had abandoned the love they had at first. So they needed to conquer a loveless heart. But to do that, he holds out for them a promise for the future. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That takes us immediately to chapter 22 of Revelation. To the very end of history. To the consummation. To the time when the bride sees the beloved. That's So he's holding out a promise of glory as a motive for conquering lovelessness. Do you see the connection? The motive is forward to conquer the present problem they have with love. And that, by the way, is the same strategy sustained through all of the other letters in these two chapters. So chapter 2 
verse 11, to the church of Smyrna, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Zooms us forward to the end. Or verse 17 of chapter 2, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with the new name written on the stone so that no one knows it except the one who receives it. That too is a promise related to the future or to the church of Thyatira. What's the key, the motive to overcoming their particular ailment? The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He takes us to the future. Chapter 3, verse 5, in the church of Sardis, to the one who conquers, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the Lamb's book of life. Or to the church of Philadelphia, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That's chapter 21 of Revelation, and then chapter, or excuse me, verse 21 of chapter 3. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. But in each case, there's this obstacle, and the future promise of what we are hoping for is the driving motivation behind the conquest. So back to our particular situation. One of the ways that love is renewed and love is intensified is to keep our eyes forward and to remember where we're headed. That here he promises, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is, I believe, figurative for life itself in communion with God himself with other people. It's the promise of life that enables us to love in the present. Fullness of life. So it's this forward look at the end that intensifies love and is the means by which they are to conquer their lovelessness. And it's interesting to me as you move to the end of this book, in the book of Revelation, that in fact we see that part of the beauty of the bride of Christ are her deeds of love. So we get to chapter 19 and verse 7, and we read this burst of praise, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, that word granted is extremely important, granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Here the bride has made herself ready, whereas she's adorned in chapter 21 by God. Here she has made herself ready, but she does so because it's granted to her. That it's a, it's a work of God's grace in his bride. But what clothes her in fine linen, bright and pure, and makes her beautiful in this text are her righteous deeds, what she has done. And in the whole flow of the New Testament, that is deeds and works of love. It's what makes her beautiful. What makes the church beautiful are her works and deeds of love. That is what we will be, and it is what we are to be now. That's where we're headed, and that's the beauty of the bride and what the Lord looks on and says, that is amazing, even though he, in his grace, is the one who has done it in us. Or even when we read in Jesus' teaching, in Matthew chapter 25, we see that when he offers to his people his eternal joy, it's because, and here I will quote, 
I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. This all speaks of the beauty of love in the bride of Christ and why it's so important. It's what God is doing in us. It's what's beautiful. God holds out life to us. says, I will give you to eat the tree of life. So we have this future motivation for us to live and love now in ways that are uncomfortable because of what lies ahead. The same thing motivated Jesus. I mean, Hebrews tells us that what, it, what enabled Jesus to endure in his, his love, in his love, shame, torment, and the cross was looking forward. For we're told that, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. So what enables one, in short, this is really the, the simple truth of this whole message, to maintain and endure and grow and intensify love day after day despite what happens is by keeping our eyes forward and focusing on the joy that's set before us that goes beyond this life. And when that becomes your focus, then you're free to love people where they're at and endure the suffering that it will, it will inevitably bring upon your life, whether it's in terms of sacrifice of time or rejection or whatever that may be. You do it because of what's ahead. Because life is ahead of you. Resurrection is ahead of you. It's the beauty of the bride that one day we will stand before the Lord and I will give an account for not only how I treated people, but how I thought about people. And that forward look does have a present motive to intensify faithfulness. In this case, faithfulness and love. How important is the future? Well, it catalyzes one of the central, the central virtue of the Christian life to enable us to love people where they're at, to meet the need in the moment, even if it's uncomfortable, because we're living for something in the future, something better and bigger and more wonderful. And I believe it works. It worked in the life of Jesus. It did work in the life of the Ephesians. Because after this letter was written, church history tells us that they repented. And they discovered, once again, the love they had at first. But it works. You set your mind and heart on the, on the future, and it will enable you to love people. Without condemnation, without self-righteous judgment. And to give yourself. Because it's not about this life. If I can reflect just for a second on yesterday's memorial service. Those of you who have been a part of this Parkway family know that we said goodbye. Family, both church family and physical family and friends said goodbye to Dave Renfro yesterday. I don't know, a couple hundred people gathered here. And testimonies were given, and I just listened. And it was amazing to hear how many different lives he had touched, not just with actions, but with words. Praying with people and the testimony that he had in his life, which was really awesome to hear. But I've also heard from a number of other people 
that when he found out that he had cancer, and it was a terminal form of cancer, that he intensified his commitment to outreach and speaking in the last two and a half years, more than the previous. And I think a large part of that is not only a spirit at work in him, but realizing that the end is coming. The end's coming, so what am I going to do with the time that I have left? And there's something that catalyzes a sense of, I want to go out sprinting, and I don't want to lay down. And that ministered to me so, so much. Because like it or not, everyone in here is terminal. We just don't have a finite date in front of us. But that shouldn't keep us from running the race each day. But if we know that there's an end coming, and at the end, we're standing before the Lord, and to want to see his face and to hear him say, I've been waiting for you, enter my joy. It works. You look forward, and you know you're terminal, but on the other side is resurrection. You give yourself 100%. I don't think there's a better thing that we can pray, not only for our lives, but even this Christmas season. Lord, will you teach me how to love people where they're at and in the moment and enable me to adapt, even if it's uncomfortable, because I want to love. For me, it may mean praying that God would give me a greater passion for people who are very dislike me, who smell terrible. For others who are shaped differently, it may mean, and if you pray for it, the Lord's going to bring opportunities your way, and they're going to be all around you. You don't have to go looking for them. For you to grow in those ways that are uncomfortable for you. Some of you are type A people who want to get to the task, and the Lord is going to bring people that are going to blow apart your daytimer. And the question in those moments are, Lord, I pray that you would expand my love. Can I put aside this strength but also weakness of my soul to listen to somebody? For others who lack patience with people and get angry at the drop of a hat, the Lord is going to bring people into your life that's going to test your patience. And those are moments to look forward and remember, you know what? I'm living for something different. We're just shaped differently. But to pray, Lord, will you teach me how to love and teach me how to love by focusing my attention on glory and the future and your face and your approval and life itself. I hope you will pray that, make that a prayer of your life because that's a big part of what we're called here to do. That the future should not only quicken and forge a sense of fidelity in our worship of Christ. It should not only catalyze in us a desire to testify to the works of Christ that conquered by the word of their testimony, but also to love. And to pray that God would help us to love, especially in the ways that are uncomfortable for us. Will you, uh, will you pray that here in response to this? Just say, Lord, will you I want to love in the moment where people need me to love and break off those rough edges of my life and fill out those areas of weakness and allow me to love as you loved with my eyes on the future. Just pray, pray that prayer. Lord, please fill out my love, strengthen my love, deepen my love.
and do whatever you have to do to do it.